Welcome to Once Upon a Tech, the literacy adventures of Miss Fitz and Miss Bit. This podcast is where technology and literacy collide. I'm Miss Fitz, and I'm the book nerd. I believe that books and libraries are critical tools for helping to create the next generation of citizens and leaders that will shape our future. And I'm Miss Fitz, and I'm passionate about transforming technology users into creators, collaborators, and activists. We've seen the power that technology and literacy have together, and the impact that it has on our students, our communities, and our passion for education. And we want to share it with you. So So let's let's do this. Welcome to our first episode. Yay, Once Upon a Tech is launching. Once Upon a Tech, it's happening. Um, I'm Sarah Fitzhenry. I'm Miss Fitz. And I'm so excited for Once Upon a Tech because I'm that person that when I love something, I want to share it to everyone and like the poor people behind me in line at the grocery store and the people that I like run into walking their dogs. Um, So I feel like we have so much cool stuff to share and I want to share it with everyone. Yay, awesome. Well, I do too. I'm Kim Wilkins, also known as Miss Bit. And I just love working with you and uh, I love working together. And I feel like the stuff that we do in that intersection of technology and literacy so many other people could do, and I'd love to see more people doing it. I'm nodding very vigorously, and then I realize that when you're on a podcast, people can't see you nodding. Yeah. So instead, I should be saying, yes, yes, I agree. Yes, of course. <laughs> the feeling is mutual. So in this episode, we have two sections. We have uh, things that made our brain explode, mm. which is going to be explained later. And then really excited that we had Dr. Jennifer Chu um, oh, yeah. come on. She's so she's, awesome. Yeah, she's the University of Virginia Curry School does a lot of engineering and you definitely should check it out yeah it's coming get ready get comfortable grab a snack yay so we're going to start something called things that made our brain explode i feel like we need to have a yes you gotta (laughs) make the sound sound i'm moving my arms yes (laughs) Um, and this was actually inspired by your blog you used to do this but it was also i'm sure a lot of work to gather all these my summer it's my summer thing yeah Yeah. so we have each picked a couple articles that we're going to share and bounce ideas off but we also want to be mindful of time we're gonna gonna try to do it two minutes each yep yeah we got a little we got our timers out all right so i'm gonna go first here we go so the article, I, first article I'm going to share, the title is, We're Constantly Asked for Pictures. Teen Researches Why Sending Naked Pics is Now Normal. Ugh. And this is by Vanessa Blanche of CBC News, so from Canada. So this really stood out to me because, A, why are they being constantly asked to send <laughs> naked pictures? When did that start? And, B, uh, it was actually a 12th grade student who uh, researched this and is now proposing a curriculum to address it in high school, and I thought that was very telling. Um, Some of the things that came through in the article were that adults really didn't seem to have a clue about how prevalent a problem this was. Um, Also came through in the article was, you know, uh, how boys are being fed media that constantly shows that they, um, you know, the masculine stereotypes and that caring about others is not important um, and girls are constantly receiving messages from media that they are not enough, that their bodies are not enough, that they have to keep improving. Um, and it was just, you know, on the one hand devastating, but on the other hand, uh, I was very hopeful that 
teens are recognizing this, and this this girl in particular um, took it into her own own hands to yeah. make a change. And uh, a couple of teachers worked with her, so that was also hopeful that you know there are adults starting to recognize that this needs to be something that's it's part of literacy. Like yeah. if we're oh, not yeah. teaching this Media in literacy. school, mm-hmm. you know that is a disservice to everybody. And I feel for the adults, you know, that's didn't exist when we were learning to be humans and and learning to be teachers. But that's you got to listen to the kids. Like this, she. If she says they need it, they need it. Right. Do right. what it takes to make it happen. Yep. All right, Ugh. great. Under two minutes. Yay. Ugh. My first article is called Voices of Change. Tomi Adeyemi, Akweke Amezi, Elizabeth Acevedo, Angie Thomas, and Nick Stone are rewriting the rules of young adult fiction. Um, this is from Elle magazine, not really one of my common reads. Um, but when I saw the article, the top of the page is this incredible full color photo of these five powerful, gorgeous black women, um, like dripping with diamonds and like Tiffany's and Chanel and looking incredible. And it is so different than the picture of publishing that we normally see that it just stopped me in my tracks. And it talks a little bit about Um, how these women are changing publishing for readers and for writers and for really anyone who's dreamed of getting into the publishing game. And then it gives this beautiful little outline of each of them and what they're doing and why they started. And there's one quote here from the article. An annual study by the Cooperative Children's Book Center at the University of Wisconsin found that of the 3,200 children's books published in 2013, only 94 were about black people. The late Walter Dean Myers, who'd written over 100 books about young people of color, took the publishing industry to task in a, new, in a Times op-ed. Books transmit values. They explore our common humanity. What is the message when some children are not represented in those books there's work to be done so I did some research and in the CCBC's 2018 report they found that of the 3,134 books published approximately 313 were about black characters so I mean it is an increase from 94 to 313 but it's just not enough right I mean it's not happening fast enough it's not opportunities aren't there and we know that publishing is not working very hard to shake those roots and that the stories of people of color are either not being told or being told by white people who've decided they have the right to tell them. Um, or when they are being told, they're being marketed as diverse or ethnic when they're just really, really great stories. Um, so I loved that Elle did this feature on these five incredible women that are absolutely rewriting the rules and um, kind of surging this path forward. And I'm, I'm grateful for them and the stories that they're telling. And I think everybody should read it. It's fabulous. Yeah, I just think it points out to the systems of inequality that are just everywhere, right? Oh, yeah. This is the same story in technology and computer mm-hmm. science. It's the same story in movies. It's just um, everywhere, and it needs to change. Well, and representation matters. So knowing that these women are being published is one thing. Um, and as a librarian, I'm clued into when these books are published, and we have them in our spaces. But um, to see it on a magazine and to see this gorgeous photo and these women being highlighted and celebrated, um, that's a whole different thing. You can't be what you can't see. And right. so way to go, L. All right. So my second article is actually a blog post from Mark Guzdial, who I um, – look up to, uh, he does computer science education, been doing it for many, many years with undergraduates. He wrote this article called Thorndike Won, Dewey Lost, the Most Important Four Words About the U.S. Education System. And I, you know, have studied education. I knew about Dewey. Uh, I knew that, you know, he had progressive ideas and somehow they 
faded out of education. And so this article really helped explain what happened. Um, I'm not going to go into details. He also links to just a ton of other resources as part of the article. But basically, Dewey was a pioneer at Chicago and Columbia, recruited, recruited faculty to his you know, point that agreed with his points of view, and then five years he left, and somebody else came in, and they had views more like Thorndike, mm. and kind of swept away um, these things. And what I didn't know is that um, Thorndike, let me see if I can find it here. So Dewey believed in educating the student, meeting them there where they were, helping them to develop in their community through teacher-driven innovations in the classroom. That sounds like stuff we love, right? Thorndike was about administrative systems, grades, teacher requirements, credentialing, preparing students for a vocation, testing. And those are a lot mm. of things I don't like about education. Yeah. <laughs> so just seeing like, oh, okay, there's this history. And this, you know, happened a while ago, and we're still sort of dealing with the effects of it. Oh, my gosh. And it, it, even in the more progressive, the one that you said that you like to hear, the word, the phrase that stuck out to me was still teacher-driven. Mm. Um which I, maybe it's because I'm spoiled working with you, but, like, that's not how we roll. That's, yeah. not, that's yeah. not what we do. It's not about what I can do. It's about what the students can do. And yeah. hmm, that's yeah. So it's, it's a, I, I highly recommend, especially if you're an educator and you don't know this history, I highly recommend this article. My final article is called Graphic Novel Wins Newbery Medal for the First Time. Yay. It's from the New York Times. If you are not an educator or in the kid-lit world, the Youth Media Awards um, are put on every year by the American Library Association. That's like the Oscars of children's literature. It's where the Newbery Medal and the um, Caldecott Medal are given out. And the Caldecott goes to the book with the best, arguably best illustrations. And the Newbery is for the story and the writing. Um, and a graphic novel took home the Newbery for the first time, not just any graphic novel. Um, it's called New Kid. It's by Jerry Craft. Um, as a librarian and a reader, I fight for graphic novels every day. Um, kids love them. They get it. And I think comic books and comics were just so different when parents and educators were growing up and learning to read and were looked at so differently that adults really have a hard time believing that they're real literature and that they're kind of worthy of time and study. Um, I found a quote from Tracy Edmonds on Twitter with this article. It said, graphic novels have now won the Pulitzer Prize, the Newbery, the National Book Award, the Caldecott. Cartoonists have been named MacArthur Fellows and National Ambassador for, Ch for Young People's Literature. Graphic novels are real literature worthy of reading and study. Um, the Newbery was one of the final awards that um, a graphic novel had not won, and I know that librarians and teachers find it to be very important. And so hopefully New Kid taking home this prize and absolutely deserving it and everyone celebrating it um, will help to convince some teachers. And it's it's worth mentioning that New Kid um, is a fantastic story that's so important. I won't read the summary because I have 20 seconds left. Um, <laughs> but it is the story of a, a boy of color who's trying to find his place in his kind of prestigious um, school, which is so necessary, and it's a point of view that we're not getting. And it's an own voices novel, which means it's a novel written about a member of a marginalized group and their experiences written by a member of the marginalized group telling their true experiences. So um, the illustrations are fantastic. The story is so good it won a Newbery. I just want to <laughs> say it again. Um, and... Uh, Every reader that I've given this book to absolutely loves it, and I was just happy tears to see it winning this award and hope that it brings about some really positive change. Awesome. And you said it was, like, uh, 
many people on hold waiting oh, yeah. to read it, and we it's going to be our yeah. faculty book club. Oh yeah, book. I gifted three copies for the holidays this year. I own a copy myself. We have two library copies, and there are seven holds on them, and the kids just love it. They don't want to give it back; they hoard it. <laughs> so we're going to have to buy some more, and it's it's for good reason. Jerry Craft, you're amazing. We love you. Yay. So here we are, our very first episode very of Once Upon a Tech. Um, we're really excited because our first guest is Dr. Jennifer Chu. She's Associate Professor of Education at the University of Virginia Curry School of Education and Human Development. That is a mouthful. <laughs> Welcome. I hope you wear that on a name tag as often as possible. <laughs> the full thing. I try. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Um, we have worked together in a variety of capacities, and so we are excited to have you on as our first guest uh, because you're doing some really cool things. Um, so my first question is: uh, one of your research areas is engineering design. Is the gen- and blah, blah. see right here? <laughs> we're gonna do that. That's, no, we're gonna leave that in. That's great. That's, that's, like, like that's that. humanizing. <laughs> All right, one of your research areas is Engineering Design Initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, first, I just want to say that I am fortunate to work with both of you, and I feel very lucky and honored to be your first podcast person. We didn't Um, even pay her to say that. (laughs) She really just wanted to say that. Um, So, yes, uh, I I primarily do work uh, with engineering design and bringing more engineering experiences to pre-college settings. Um, This is somewhat informed by my own experience and um, somewhat by uh, research as well. Um, So I was told I was good at math and science and that I should be an engineer. So when I went to college, um, I said, well, okay, I'll try this out. But I had no idea what engineering was. And um, I got to go through a variety of introductory courses in different types of engineering to kind of uh, figure out what flavor I liked. Um, And I thought, well, this would be amazing if we could bring these kinds of experiences and opportunities to students before they get to college. Um, And for them to be able to see the reasons why they're learning a lot of the math and science content um, and be able to apply that. So engineering um, is the application of mathematics and science to solve human problems. Um, and so it's, it's nice for students, at, if they're learning these kind of rote or memorizing concepts, for them to be able to see, oh, why is this relevant to me? It's because, oh, I can design lipstick, or I can design shoes, or I can um, design better ways for people to play basketball um, using their knowledge. Um, and so that's kind of where it started from. Um, and uh, I've been really excited to be able to um, help students feel um, more agency about them being able to create solutions to, to problems they see around them that, and uh, for them to uh, be able to um, feel as if they can change the world around them. I just love that definition of engineering as using math and science and applying it to solve human, pro- human problems. That's so cool and that's so similar to what we're trying to do with our computer science work is to show that it's relevant and that when you apply it you can help people. So it's not I think some students say think that math and science is just numbers on paper and so to be able to say you do that and it's empathetic and it helps people and it changes the world in that way that involves heart. That's really cool. 
Absolutely. And so I feel like there's a lot of similarities between computer science and engineering. And in some places, computer science is considered engineering. And in some places, computer science is considered more of a science discipline. But in terms of the processes of designing solutions to human problems, um, there's a lot of crossover, of course. Um, and so that's why. And of course, with engineering, you have to use computational methods. Like that's one of the tools that engineers use, it's one of the tools that scientists use, it's one of the tools that mathematics, mathematicians use, as well as people in the humanities, right? It's, it's now one of the um, most needed tools in the tool belt for, for many practitioners, and it's um, only fair that we give those kinds of tools to students. You mentioned not having really experienced engineering until you went to college. What age do you wish that you had been exposed to engineering? Um, that's a great question. I think you can... And it's not on the script, so uh, No, sorry. no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sarah. No, <laughs> no I think... Um, so there's great, there are great programs for engaging preschool students in engineering. I mean, if you think of a lot of building and making and trying to solve problems. That's a lot of what goes into preschool, right? Um, so it's not just for high school, it's not just for middle school, but I think as uh, early as we can to try to give these opportunities to help students feel as if they can do this, they develop identities around being an engineer. Um, that can help um, solve a lot of problems about who, uh, of course, feels as if they can, um, if there's any prejudices, from outside or external forces about um, you know, social influences, then we can try to stymie that with, with um, engineering experiences as early as possible. What do you think are some of the barriers to bringing engineering into early education and you know, elementary, middle school education? Um, so, uh, you know, surprisingly, in elementary, not surprisingly, but elementary teachers, I think, naturally incorporate uh, many um, engineering-ish uh, or engin like aligned or ally kind of very similar lessons. Um, and, and so I think elementary teachers kind of have this natural, um, natural affinity. And so they, they seem to kind of get it, right, where um, they say, oh yeah, no, I can, I can, I can work this in. Um, I see how it might fit into literacy. I see how it fits into math. Um, and um, there are a lot of great curricula out there, like engineering is elementary, um, uh, that, that kind of focus on elementary teachers. Um, and it's, what I've seen as a little bit more problematic is middle and high school, when they're more disciplinary um, in nature and um, teachers are trying to get through content and there's more emphasis on standardized testing. Um, and so it's a little bit more difficult to get engineering in. It can be more difficult to get engineering into those settings. That's interesting, because I feel like I can't, it, there's almost the opposite problem in computer science. Mm -hmm. Com computer science is very difficult to get into the early levels because teachers are intimidated by it, mm -hmm. um, and they don't see that they're already doing it. So I go into classrooms sometimes, and I'm like, hey, you're doing like conditions <laughs> with other things, you know? Um, so helping them recognize that they're already doing some of that. Um, right. It's interesting that they recognize that in engineering, but not with computer science as much. I think it might be the physical nature of, so a lot of engineering projects um, involve making and building uh, prototypes. And so I think that initial sort of, like, oh yeah, we're gonna make, we're gonna build, or that, that kind of, like the physical nature of it um, can be 
can be appealing um, to elementary teachers. Um, but that being said, um, there is, of course, there's less, I think, integration overall in, in, in elementary settings as opposed to like their standalone classes at middle school and high school levels. So, As a cross-divisional teacher who works with um, sometimes preschool but currently kindergarten through eighth grade, the way things are integrated into elementary school classrooms seems much more creative mm -hmm. and there's a lot more risk taking and building and going with the flow. Mm -hmm. But you, you mentioned the content and the standardized testing and so sometimes I wonder, is it better that it's integrated into classrooms if it's really high stakes and it's integrated in that way? Or is it better to not have it at all rather than being exposed to it in a way that makes it like another standardized test? Yeah, that's it's a great point in terms of um, uh, what the total, like what the goal is for, for bringing engineering in. Um, so some people, and some of my research, um, I would say a large portion of my research is actually um, trying to make the point that if you bring in engineering design activities, um, it can actually help students learn mathematics and science content more deeply than if you were to just sort of go over it in a procedural manner. Um, or if you have specific concepts that are really difficult for students to get, then that might be a nice place to bring in an engineering design challenge where it's physical, they're kind of wrestling with, um, you know, having to, to use the concepts in order to design something. Uh, for example, one of the projects we did, we asked some middle school um, mathematics teachers, what's the most difficult thing for you to um, teach? Like, what is the most abstract, the most, um, like, uh, you know, what do students struggle with? And they said, um, uh, uh, like, spheres, conic sections, and um, uh, now I'm going to forget, but like circle, circle geometry. And so we designed a project to help them, uh, help students uh, design an ice cream cone so that they could see relationships between, like if you had a flat kind of uh, piece of a circle, if that folds up, it folds up to a cone, and then how can you basically maximize the amount of volume that you're gonna get in the cone and minimize the amount of surface area if you're gonna like build a waffle cone. So the students really liked that activity and it helped reinforce the underlying mathematics concepts. And they actually learned some of the um, like formulas and concepts while doing the, while doing the design project. Oh, it's so smart. Yeah, and I've, I've seen that in computer science too. In fact, that's how I got through geometry is once I could code it, then I understood it. But I didn't understand it just through the math. When you let some whimsy in there, which sometimes <laughs> we think that kids grow out of whimsy and creativity and wanting to play, and that's so not true. Oh, yeah. I mean, an 18-year-old is going to be just as excited about designing their ideal ice cream cone as an eight-year-old, and I'm sure they were so interested in that project because they got to add sprinkles at the end. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes it so great. They got to actually have some ice cream, test it out. Oh, and, man. Yeah, make some waffles. the best. Yeah. <laughs> really trying to sell them on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one thing that um, Sarah and I have learned from you is design thinking, and we love it. Um, we've used it with students, we've used it with teachers. How important is that whole process uh, for you with engineering? Yeah, so um, I, uh, so going back to when I was talking about taking all these different classes in college, um, I was fortunate enough that some of my friends were um, 
doing this major called product design. It's like, what's this major called? I don't know what this is. And they're like, oh, it's like mechanical engineering, but it's it's like a fun mechanical engineering. And so <laughs> mechanical uh, engineers are like, what? <laughs> I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> so instead of taking like advanced thermodynamics or fluid mechanics, you get to take sculpture and drawing. And uh, it was all about design. So design thinking. Um, and so it was before like there was a D school there, there and, and still there is still the product design major. So, um, so that was really transformational for me. Um, I was a great student in high school. I got to college and I was like, uh, I don't know what's really what I want to do. And so I was on academic probation for a while, believe it or not. And then once I found product design, it was like, this is my jam. Um, I started finally like, you know, getting good grades and really kind of exploding. What I really liked about it was that it combines the um, design, the engineering design, sort of like the cold engineering design with the, um, the social aspects of empathy and perspective taking oh. and uh, need finding that um, is really important when you're thinking about designing solutions to human problems a lot of times. Not anymore, but stereotypically, engineers can forget the human part of the human problems. And so it's been um, transformational for me, and um, I think can be transformational for a lot of students. Um, and so that's why, um, like you were saying, I use it in a lot of my classes. We do workshops around design thinking with teachers. Um, and um, again, similar to engineering design, it can really help people give a framework for being able to come up with creative and innovative solutions to problems. Um, and, and to give that kind of power or to give that kind of framework over to teachers and to students um, can be, for lack of a better word, can really empowering. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why I really love to be able to kind of spread the word. How, uh, it is very empowering, but it's also very um, terrifying is too strong a word, but it's scary, <laughs> right? Because as an educator, you're basically um, handing control over to students. So how mm -hmm. do you help, especially new teachers, um, kind of embrace that process? Yeah, it's, um, it can be very different. So if you're trying to help people go into more design-based pedagogy and design-based approaches, um, because, yeah, the power is no longer, you're not longer the sage on the stage, right? You're, you're releasing the power over to your students. Um, I think um, in some cases, some of the strongest examples that we can give them are, are the student examples of work. Like when you um, let the students go, like what they are capable of doing is so much better, so much um, you know, stronger, so much higher quality than if you were to give them a regular lesson. Um, and so that's one of the, for our pre-service teachers, um, one, of the, one of the strongest um, ways that we can get them to kind of buy into it. Um, and also for them, for, kind of for themselves, right? So when we engage the pre-service teachers in design thinking, a lot of times it's kind of getting that aha moment about, um, oh, you know, I thought the problem was that I wasn't um, scaffolding the lesson enough for them. And the real problem was I needed to throw out the lesson entirely <laughs> because it was boring, right? Mm -hmm. And we needed to restructure it. Um, and so I think the, that also, do, doing the front work of need finding, the empathy, doing the observations, the interviews, um, especially in a kind of a school setting, can be really, really powerful. Yeah. 
I'm feeling very jealous of the teachers that get to work with you in pre-service because those lessons took me, I mean, I, Kim and I didn't start working together until five years into my career and it took my working with Kim and her sharing what she learned from you. If I had learned that in pre-service and could have taken that into my first year of teaching, it just, the energy you're all gonna save. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we don't. I we still are doing some research yet, but at least I'm always of the the opinion that um, you know it may not be the first year. We say this. It may not be your first year. It may not be your second year, depending on what context they go into, right? Because they could be in very different contexts that they go out into their placements or into their their uh, their praxis. Um, but it's something that they've got um, that they can use eventually, right? And that. Um, we're not saying that you should do everything design-based, mm -hmm. right? But it should be another tool in your tool belt that you can pull out and maybe have one per quarter or one every semester or something that um, can can help them engage their students in different ways. We do a project with our fourth graders at the end of every year, and the ideas that come from 10-year-olds when you empower them in that way, it's it's pretty incredible. In fact, there's proof of it in the library. There many, is. many different projects that they initiated. I would love to show you. I can post some on our Instagram if you're interested <laughs> in them because the stuff they've done is so much cooler than anything I could have ever thought of. Absolutely. Yeah. So we had this really great conversation before we started recording. <laughs> so we're going to try to recreate it. Let's see. Uh, but one of the things we wanted to ask you is where do you see engineering in uh, this conversation of the intersection of technology and literacy? Because that's what Once Upon a Tech is all about. Yeah, I see. So I had a question about how you define um, literacy and the intersection of technology and literacy. And I think the root of the answer to that question is our definition of literacy, which I think for me at least, is growing and changing. I'm a librarian, I have a master's in library information science, um, and one of my bachelor's degrees is in English creative writing. So I have the traditional definition of literacy, the ability to read and write, and if you wanna push it a little bit farther, the ability to appreciate and understand what you read and write. Um, but the more I work with children and the more I learn about technology and computer science, my definition of literacy and the definition of literacy that I try to pass along to the kids that I work with um, is much bigger. And it feels more like what you need to be able to do and understand and appreciate in order to recognize the kind of art and the beauty in the world, which is no longer just reading and writing, but is reading and writing and creating and taking things in and creating things digitally and um, it changes all the time. I'll have a different definition tomorrow if you want to come back <laughs> and ask me again. Um, but literacy, the definition has really grown for me, and it includes much more tech than I than I used to see in there. Yeah, and I think you know, tech is just such a huge part of um, students' lives these days. Mm -hmm. That to me, if they don't understand what's going on under the covers, under the hood, if you will, mm -hmm. um, then tech is going to sort of use them versus them being in charge of it. So mm -hmm. it's very important to me that literacy includes knowing how websites work and knowing how you can code an app and knowing what privacy and security means to you and knowing what you're sharing on social media, what happens with that. So it's just a, a very broad umbrella that um, I feel like kids need to really understand. Mm -hmm. And when I'm creating my kind of scope and sequence, my 
teacher listeners will recognize that phrase, but <laughs> when I'm thinking about what it is that I want my students to know by the end of our time together, um, there's so many different forms of literacy and that there's digital literacy, there's web literacy, there's actual reading and writing literacy, there's social emotional literacy. Mm -hmm. um, I've recently been reading and trying to implement more invention literacy. Mm -hmm. And so it just keeps growing mm -hmm. and getting bigger, which means that the way that it intersects with um, technology is growing and changing mm -hmm. and hopefully a library is constantly growing and changing so as mm -hmm. the definition of literacy is changing the space should be flexible enough to change mm -hmm. flexible <laughs> flexible. <laughs> flexible enough to grow and change with it and provide students with what they need that sounds fantastic I feel like I have a much better sense of the question now so thank you <laughs> we can ask it again our podcast is all about the intersection of technology and literacy how do you see engineering as part of that conversation so so I think broadly um, you know if you think of engineers they create everything you see around you that is not the natural world right so but a very broad level um, any Discussion about technology and where technology should go should should necessarily and will necessarily involve engineers, sort of on a, on a on a very broad very broad level, and they need to be very aware of how it affects technology and literacy, right? Um, as the creators of the technology, um, so thinking about the um, like sort of the the digital literacies, I think that um, Kim was really bringing out. Um, it's extremely important as part of engineering to be literate and to be able to use the tools in order to create the technologies to solve human problems, right? So I think that's um, naturally a part of engineering is to be able to understand and use the technologies um, uh, that are digital and physical. Um, and, and thinking about the literacy component for kind of more of a school-based setting or more of a learning setting, um, I think there's something particularly interesting and uh, are, are particular, particularly synergistic about engineering design and literacy in the way that um, if you're thinking about literacy in the disciplines. So writing about science, writing about um, the natural, their observations of the world, right? I think it's great. I was a former science teacher. I was a former math teacher, right? So I love science and I love math. But when students have to justify or argue or explain what they've designed, they have more buy-in, right? They're trying to explain their creation. And so helping them to, to see how to justify their, their designs um, can be uh, particularly helpful for students who may not engage with reading or writing in science, uh, for example, or reading or writing in another discipline, um, just because they feel so much ownership over what they've, what they've created. And so what we've seen is that um, you know, the design explanations, they have to necessarily, we've, we've kind of had to go through and make sure that when the design explanations involves the scientific understanding, they're doing a great job of creating scientific explanations and justifications for their designs, um, as well as you know actually talking about the engineering piece as well. So they have to explain their mathematical understanding, right, for why they came up with the design that they did. So it kind of helps them articulate and write about their understandings um, in these in these domains. Um, as well as, I know engineering is elementary, which I'm just putting a plug in because I do really, really love them, um, and the creator is amazing. Um, they also have like accompanying books for all of the projects, right? Um, and so to help 
engage students with um, reading and more of the like formal reading and writing. Oh, so the books are actually geared towards students. Yep. Oh, nice. Yeah, so they have like accompanying books about um, that kind of set the context for the challenge, um, which are, are nice kind of companions. And that's really helpful for a teacher that wants to incorporate engineering or computer science or bring something into their classroom, but they're, you know, I'm already planning so much and I don't know how to create these challenges, I'm not qualified. Right. And so anything that can kind of hand them a challenge or at least an inspiration for a challenge and make one thing easier, make it, that's one less barrier to bringing it into the classroom. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, completely agree. And then they can use it with their ELA time or English language arts time. Um, and feel more comfortable bringing that in to, to time that would be devoted for those types of subjects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and we'll be sharing all these links to these resources that we're talking about. So Great. If they want to learn more. You were interviewed in a recent article titled, UVA Curry School Joins National Effort to Get 100,000 New STEM Teachers in Schools by 2021. Um, it's a very telling title. Mm-hmm. Why is this a cause that you believe in? I'm curious to know what roles you imagine these teachers filling in schools, whether it's like designated STEM and technology roles or classroom teachers, subject specialists. And this is a multi-part question because I'm me <laughs> and that's how my brain works. Um, what kind of differences do STEM teachers, especially excellent STEM teachers make in schools? Yeah, so this is a great um, a great national effort. It's called 100K in 10. Um, it was started under the Obama administration, um, and so they wanted to get 100,000 uh, new teachers trained up and out into the field in 10 years, and I think they've made their goals. Um, wow. So they recruited heavily um, through many, many, many teacher education programs to track how many Um, science and mathematics teachers they were producing. Um, So it's it's not so much, they they did have um, some smaller subgroups about sort of integrated STEM approaches, so not just, um, you know, a science teacher going into science, but um, something like a a STEM coordinator where they're looking to do cross-disciplinary work. Um, But but yeah, so they've been a tremendous Um, a tremendous resource. The kinds of differences, I mean, if you think about um, the impact that teachers have on students' lives, it's so important that um, elementary students, middle school students, and high school students have um, great experiences in science and mathematics classes, right? And especially, um, you know, traditionally, um, potentially set females haven't been encouraged or there's a lot of implicit bias around um, who can and should be in uh, math and science classes. Um, so it's really important that we've got, you know, science teachers who, science and math teachers, who can really provide uh, wonderful learning opportunities for all students. Um, and, and sort of thinking about um, the ways that we can meet the high expectations of a lot of the national um, standards. So for example, Um, the next generation science standards um, that for science are in Virginia we don't um, ascribe or we're not an NGSS state um, but we have very similar state standards um, kind of hold science classes to a new bar where they should be uh, engaging in science and so it's not 
about the content. So it's not memorization of facts, but it's actually going out and asking questions and planning investigations and being able to create and use computational models, use mathematics um, to answer the questions, be able to communicate um, and uh, be able to uh, combine information from a variety of texts. So it's much more about the practices and what like scientists actually do instead of just memorization of content. Um, and mathematics is very similar with the Common Core, which I know there's been a lot of pushback about, but, but really trying to think about how do we engage students in mathematical discourse? How do we engage them in strategies, talking about their strategies, talking about um, their problem solving, um, you know, different kinds of ways that they solve problems instead of just regurgitating math facts, right? Um, how do we engage them in the logic of math and the beauty and the joy, as the um, NCTM would say, uh, of mathematics? And so um, it's really important to get teachers, uh, to help teachers be able to provide these kinds of experiences to students so that we don't sort of reinforce the old ways of um, thinking about science and math being very um, dry, being very cold, being very, I'm lecturing to you. Yeah. Um, and That's another, how I learned math yeah. and science. Yeah. <laughs> and another, I have to say, a huge piece of this is actually with us at the university because a lot of faculty teach this way. And so for a lot of teachers, when they are becoming science or math teachers, they have to. Um, they, they have to get their science degree. And so the models and the examples they have of science teaching is like a professor standing up in front of a huge lecture um, classroom. And so uh, it's not only helping teachers to be able to do, to, not in teacher education programs, but also changing the way universities teach so that um, they're not getting these horrible models of science and mathematics teaching reinforced in, when they're in the uh, undergraduate degree. I wonder how many people are going to hear that and go, oh, how dare you? <laughs> they can go ahead and feel free to email me. <laughs> so you um, brought up something there that we haven't actually touched on yet, which is the stereotypes and implicit biases that are surrounding engineering. Mm -hmm. And um, I think talking about what, the way it's traditionally been taught is definitely part of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, but what else do you think has been part of the problem keeping women and uh, other underrepresented minorities away from engineering? Well, I think a lot of it um, might be exposure, right? So, um, and that's why one of the big uh, reasons why I like to do engineering in pre-college settings and so that everybody has exposure to engineering. It's very similar to computer science um, in that, you know, the people who have exposure to engineering are often the students who can sign up for summer camps, can sign up for after school and pay for after school settings instead of something that's throughout the school day. Um, and so um, kind of going back to what I was saying about helping students feel like they can do this or develop an identity about this or at least become aware of what it is um, can be really important to help um, females and underrepresented minorities uh, and minority, minoritized students um, feel like they can uh, choose engineering uh, in, in undergraduate and as a career. Nice. Anything else? I have a question for oh. you. <laughs> <laughs> Off um, script. <laughs> you know, I, I took a little note here. Um, 
And I'm wondering, it's kind of a, seems like it's a hot debate in education whether engineering, design, computer science should be integrated directly into core subjects or whether it should be treated as a standalone class. Um, I know it's something that I heard a lot at the CS Institute, and it's something that I hear our teachers wondering about sometimes. Mm -hmm. What is your opinion? Should it be everywhere? Should it be threaded into everything? Or should you go to engineering time from 1.30 to 2.45? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm a middle child, and so I see things from both sides, and I often say, like, yes, I, I, I don't want to take a, a firm stance either way. Um, for... Um, for K-8 settings, for, for elementary settings, I think um, it's really important that it be integrated and not a choice um, because, like we were saying before, um, it's imperative that we give all students the opportunity to uh, engage in computer science and engage in engineering. And so that can be kind of extended up through a little bit of middle school um, just so that they, um, they, they have experience and they feel like, oh yeah, I can do this and I can sign up for the computer science classes. I do feel like there, there are things that you can do, of course, in like high school computer science classes that are focused on computer science that is really important. Like computer science as a discipline is, um, is very important. And so I, I don't wanna say that it's not, um, it, it's an either or. So I'm kind of in the middle, and I think they should have both. So there should be some exposure that's given to all, and then there should be the opportunities that if they feel like they want to do this, they should be able to dive into it at, at higher levels. And I think we've heard um, from some, some schools that when they do engineering or computer science, it's like um, an added activity, and mm -hmm. so that's when they pull out the kids that need help mm -hmm. and so that's not great mm -hmm. or um, it is a separate class and mm -hmm. when you look at the diversity numbers mm -hmm. they're not great mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um, yeah I'm, I also feel like especially elementary like that's where mm -hmm. we can catch them and everybody should be exposed and understand what it is so then mm -hmm. they can make those decisions mm -hmm. to keep, keep going with it, even with the stereotypes and even with the bias and even with all the other mm -hmm. sort of issues around it. Mm -hmm. Well, I do think it's also thinking, it's also, I wouldn't say revolutionizing, but greatly transforming the way we see our disciplines as well. So I'm just gonna give it a case for, for science. Um, I was talking about the next generation science standards, they actually include engineering alongside science. And so now nationally, science teachers need to learn how to um, incorporate engineering into their class, um, into their science classes, as well as it calls for computational models being used and computational thinking to be used. So um, if you're thinking about what scientists do and trying to help students feel or engage in what scientists do. Scientists build computational models of the climate, of a phenomena, of an ecosystem. And that is one of their, I would say, uh, you know, hand in hand with per doing actual physical investigations and experiments, right? So to shortchange students from doing that kind of work is really not giving them an accurate picture of what science is. And you could say probably the same with um, many other disciplines is that if you look at what these people are doing in the authentic practice, it's using computational tools, um, and and that's the kind of that's the kind of experience we need to be giving to our students. It's not so that they can just regurgitate information on the test, right? We want them to be able to um, understand, be able to um, try on different um, identities, 
uh, see what they're interested in, right? Be able to understand what these people do. And right now, unfortunately, we're giving students the idea that all adults do are take tests and study for tests, right? <laughs> I always go into, when I used to teach science methods, um, I'd go into the class on the first day and say, do you think that scientists sit at their desks and take tests? And they're like, no, we don't think scientists do that. And I was like, well, why are we making our students do this, right? Mm -hmm. And why are we making the, um, all of the emphasis about that instead of going out and investigating, coming up with great questions and investigating the, the world around you? Um, so yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Mix that with <laughs> representation and seeing people that look like you and that grew up like you and think like you Absolutely. in these fields. I mean, that's, that's a powerful combo. Yeah, I didn't even get there, but <laughs> that'll be another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the very last thing I wanted to ask was um, the CS Institute. We're going to be running it again Yay! this summer. Unfortunately, I don't have the date right in front of me, but I will um, put it in the podcast later. But what could we tell uh, teachers about the CS Institute? What, what should they know? They should know that first, um, Kim and Sarah are phenomenal. They'll have <laughs> an absolutely amazing experience here. I've been able, I've been so lucky to just kind of sit back and watch um, for a lot of the CS Institute. And um, the number of teachers, everybody comes away saying, you know, this has been really transformational for me, transforming. I don't know what the real world, the, the word. Is it transformative? Transformative, thank you. I liked all of them. Thank you. We can just conjugate I'm just, it. At this point, I'm just making up words. <laughs> so you know it's a good podcast. <laughs> so let me try to get to my train of thought. So many teachers have said what uh, a wonderful experience the CS Institute um, has been, and, and in particular, being able to have concrete lessons, having concrete skills, and, and having the, um, the, the kind of overview of different kinds of things that they can integrate and take with them into practice. And then, as a little plug, we'll be having um, a uh, sign up for a cohort in case you want to, uh, if you're really interested in this, for us to give you support throughout the year um, in integrating uh, computer science into your, uh, your teaching and into lessons. Um, so outside of the outstanding examples and outstanding sessions that I know Sarah has led for years now, um, and Kim has led the entire institute for years now. Um, I think that this is one of the best professional developments that I've ever seen. So Ooh, wow. that's yes. nice. And if you're if you're blocking days out on your calendar right now, just remember you being a tech expert is not. You don't have to know that when you show up. Um, I'm sitting with an associate professor and a person who holds a degree in technology, but I'm a librarian. Like, they, <laughs> you don't have to be a master or be comfortable. Like, you just show up, and if you're willing to learn, mm -hmm. that's really all you need to bring with you. Yep. Great. Anything else, Sarah? Yay! Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. No, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be able to talk with you and to be your first podcast. So exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Once Upon a Tech, the literacy adventures of Misfits and Misfit. You can find all of the resources we mentioned today on our website at www.onceuponatech.com. See you in March.